for a few weeks now, we've been looking at that little book called Philemon, a little letter in the New Testament. We've uh, spent five weeks on it, or we will have after today. And this is the final day we look at that little letter. And when you start reading a book like Philemon in the New Testament, one of the things that you realize is you're stepping into a different culture. And um, one of the dangers of reading the Bible is actually you just assume that what they experienced and and the way of life for them was exactly the same as it is for us and vice versa. And so you don't recognize sometimes the big leaps in culture. It's true that the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. And that's certainly true when you read something like Philemon. Me and Maggie have had a brilliant weekend. We've been, uh, this weekend, Fallon uh, and Kevin, um, uh, Diane and Gilda's daughter, got married. They're from the Congo, and um, they, on, uh, we were in, we've been invited to all of their sort of various uh, marriage uh, services. There were three. Um, there was an event at the registry office a number of months ago that I was at. And then on Friday night, they had a cultural wedding uh, where the families came together. And yesterday, they had a blessing in church. They are the best, most well-married couple I know. And we were invited, and we were very much in the minority. And on Friday night, particularly at the cultural uh, wedding, we were adrift. There were some things we thought, wow, that's brilliant. And we, we, we would say, I don't think we wear enough colorful clothing. I mean, look at us. Just look around. We're all, it's like, it's like we're in black and white. Whereas Congolese folk live in color. And I think there's something to be said for that. I don't think we dance enough. I don't think we dance enough. And it struck me that it was even the folks who didn't have that much rhythm seemed not to let that stop them, which is great news for someone like me. I don't think we dance enough. And I'm not sure we sing enough either, really. But when we were standing as part of or sitting as part of that evening, particularly on Friday, we came away with just a million questions. Why do you do that? Why? Why does that happen? Does that, is that okay? Why? And we were just sort of like, we've got a million questions to sit down with Gilders and Diane about when they've got space in their heads. Why? Because the biggest reminder was, it's not our culture. It's remind, one of the big reminders for us this weekend is we belong to a world where the way we do things not necessarily the way either it ought to be or everybody does it. And it's just that wonderful reminder. And by the way, if any of you are thinking of getting married, and I'm assuming that those of you are married, and I'm not suggesting that you... But if you're not married and you're thinking of getting married, I know a brilliant song to leave the church to. It knocks Here Comes the Bride into a cocktail. I've got to tell you. And uh, it's just a brilliant song to leave with. Culture. You can assume, and we can make those big leaps that everything ought to be done the way we think. Well, as we said, the story of Philemon, if uh, you've not been around or if you're new to us, the story of three people, really Philemon, a slave owner, 
Onesimus, a runaway slave, and Paul, the apostle, who is trying to mediate between these two people. In the first century, slavery was remarkably common. They reckoned that about 25% of the Roman Empire were slaves. You became a slave through the way slaves have always become slaves, really. Uh, You became a slave because either you were caught in a war or you were born of a slave or you've gone bankrupt and the only thing you can sell is yourself. You sold yourself into slavery. Onesimus was one of those slaves that was very common He was a runaway slave. So when writers are writing in the first century, outside of the Bible, they write a lot about how do you keep your slaves in order? Because you can't, you don't want slaves to be runaways. And you don't want a whole stack of Spartacus, you know, where there's the revolt of the slaves. How do you keep your slaves in order? A slave owner owned a slave completely. A runaway slave could be justifiably beaten with an inch of its life. Justifiably, in the eyes of everybody. A slave, a runaway slave, could be branded so that if anyone met them for the rest of their life, they would know they belonged to someone else. And a slave owner could, and often would, sexually abuse their slaves without anybody thinking about whether that's right or wrong. At the time, um, when Paul is writing, perhaps about 20 years later, there's this guy called Musonius Rufus, who's a Roman philosopher, and he writes this. It's accepted that every master is entitled to use his slave as he desires. Just the way of the world. So really, when you're reading this little book of Philemon, one of the questions that surely you want to ask is, why did Paul send him back? Paul uses all the influence he has with Philemon to say, will you accept him back? Why didn't Paul use all his influence to go, I'm going to protect you in SMS, you don't have to go back. Why didn't Paul, instead of saying, Onesimus, go back to your master, why didn't Paul go, Philemon, we've got to see society differently. We've just got to let our slaves go. It's not fair. It's not right. We shouldn't be doing it. Surely that's the question. Is, is Paul just going, actually, it's, slavery is fine. Why does Paul not do what we would do? We would go on marches. <laughs> you probably can't see this right at the back. Um, But that guy's got a a sign, characteristically not held high, that says, you know it's bad when the introverts are marching. (sighs) Why don't? We would go on marches. We would petition. We would say, no, you can't do this. We've got to fight for freedom. And of course, part of the Christian story is that the church and people within the church... Not always the established churches 
But the people within the church, the Christians within the church, have been the people who've been at the forefront of this. It was Wilberforce in England who went, we've got to stop this trading in slavery. It is Martin Luther King, who in America, from a Baptist background, preached about a different way of life. And this week, when that young guy was killed by police in Memphis, I don't know if you saw it on the news, but in the worship service, they're still preaching. So as Christians have often been at the, at the front end of this, saying we need a different way and society needs to change and we've got we've to see it. But those ripples began so many years ago. Why did Paul not do that? Well, I want to suggest a couple of things. Firstly, Paul's in prison. <laughs> Remember that. Paul's in prison. Secondly, their religion is the smallest minority in the Roman Empire. Christianity was the smallest minority and suspected by everybody. And thirdly, I think Paul, because of those things, because they were on the margin of society, because they were overlooked, because they were the smallest group in Rome and Empire, I think what Paul recognized is we need to do something, but let's do something remarkably and radically different. In a sentence, I think he said this, don't tell the world, show the world a better way. Don't tell the world, show them a better way. I think it's easy for preachers like me to bang on about how society needs to change and how you know, systems need to change and how we get involved in politics. And, and some folks are involved in politics. Most of us are not except for voting. <clears throat> and actually, at the end of the day, when we hear those sort of messages, it can just make us feel powerless. Well, what can we do? Because we're not involved. They don't ask us. What, what can we do? Well, we can show them a better way. in a new community that takes the everyday, that reimagines a different way of living. And those ripples that began in the New Testament flow through history until today we're in a place in the West where we go, people have inalienable rights. Where did that come from? The New Testament. It comes from being created in the image of God. It's not atheism that said people have inalienable rights. It's Christianity that said, because you're created in the image of God, you have rights. And even if you're the poorest, you have rights. Even if you're the smallest, you have rights. Why? Because we believe you're created in the image of God. And so the Christian church, at its best, we have allowed those ripples to go through society. It begins here. Slaves, in Colossians, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. Do it, not only when their eyes on you and to curry their favor, 
but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it's the Lord Christ you're serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs. There is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what's right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. This is not written to every slave and master in Rome. This is written to a church who are so inevitably ingrained in the culture that Paul says, here, we do things differently. Out there, it might be different, but here, we will choose a different way of being. Look at what Paul's saying. To those who are slaves, how do you give people dignity? You're not owned, Paul will say, by your master. Not ultimately. It's God. It's God you're working for. It's God who's got you. It's God you belong to. At the beginning of the service, when all those folks came to the front and said, this is what we appreciate about God. This is what we're learning. There's there's stories behind each of those sort of like few sentences that they said. But behind each of the sentences, I suspect this, that there were times where they felt absolutely powerless, absolutely crushed, but they believed that God was involved, that God was on their side, and that whatever was happening around them and to them and, and with them, God was making a difference. Now either, let's be honest, either they're fooling themselves or they're making a claim about a whole new different way of looking at life. And the early church and all churches through it have always said we see life differently because of God who sent Jesus who died and rose again and rules on high. We've got a new imagination. That's why you're not working for some toxic master. You can turn your work as worship to God. And though your masters might beat you and brand you and abuse you sexually, you need to carry in your heart that is not the end of the story because those who do wrong will be repaid. There is no favoritism. Now, for some people, that's pie in the sky when you die. But when you're in it, you take the long view. When you're in it, you go, it's not always going to be like this because God doesn't have favorites. I don't care if you're a master. You don't. God doesn't. He's not impressed. And he says to masters, Paul says directly to masters, provide for your slaves what's right and fair. You know you have a master in heaven. Paul is working out a way of dealing with a culture that he knows isn't right. A culture that grinds some people down. A culture that makes some people look small and feel small and be small. And Paul goes, actually, not so here. It's going to be different here.
Let me just push it one more way home to make it clear what I want to say. In our culture, if you're black and you're young and you're male, statistically, you are much more likely to get stopped by the police because you look suspicious. Not so here. We will not judge one another on our race or our cultural differences. It's easy when you're in a context that you don't understand to look and judge because you've never asked. Not so here. Because we are created in the image of God and we are brothers and sisters. We belong to one another. Education's important <clears throat> and we want our kids to do well. But the story we tell in the West is this. If you get educated, you get a better job. If you get a better job, you get a better wife. If you get a better wife, you get a better house. Patriarchal. It works the other way. Here, we know we've got people with more degrees than you need. And we've got people who left school at 15. Your education or your lack of education does not equate to wisdom. Because wisdom is a gift of the Spirit. Here, it doesn't automatically mean that because you're educated in a certain way, that we all get to listen to you. Here, service matters more than what other people have said you are worth. And those of you that struggled the most in education know how crushing that was for you because you felt that you'd been labelled from a very young age as not managing to succeed. Not so here. There comes a time in people's lives and for, for different people it's at different stages and I suspect it's different between male and female but as you get older, there comes a moment where you begin to feel that you're invisible and that your voice doesn't matter anymore. Because it's all about the young. Here, we're the family of God, where those who've lived the longest have seen enough. And if they're still here, they've played the long game. And we need to hear the voices of the elderly, even if the voices are frail and fragile. They are not people simply to be cared for, but to be worked alongside and to be listened to. In our world, more generally, the elderly are a bit of a problem. Where will we put them? How do we care for them? And aren't they costing us a lot of money? Not so here. And finally, money matters, doesn't it? And we know that amongst us, some of us will have more money than others. <clears throat> those of us who have more, we are called to use it to care for those who don't. But the amount in your bank balance, even if we knew it, 
would not be the sign of your value. Because here, character matters more. Kindness matters more than what you can buy. Now, for most of us, we know this stuff. But it's remarkably easy for churches to become as shaped by their culture as anywhere else. And what we recall ourselves to time and time again is not so here. And we do it because of Jesus. Jesus one day was with his disciples and he said, you know how the Gentiles, they lord it over one another because the disciples were talking about who were going to be in charge. You know how that's the way the world goes. And he simply uses that phrase, not so among you. We're going to read Philemon again for the final time. Because the one character that we have assumed, rightly so, I want you to notice how many times that character is mentioned in the book of Philemon. And Julian's going to come and read it for us. And um, Ewan, when we go through the Bible, can you just keep flicking it through? Because it's easier, I think, for you to do it than for me to do it. Start now. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. Also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier. And to the church that meets in your home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I've heard about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is none other than Paul, an old man now, and also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you. Now he's become useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to have keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel. But I didn't want to do anything without your consent, so that any favour you would do would not seem forced, but would be voluntary. Perhaps the reason he was separated you from a, for a little while was that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, 
but even dearer to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done you any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I will. I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. And one thing more, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you in answer to your prayers. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Thanks, Julian. You see it? 25 verses. 14 references to Jesus. He couldn't make it clearer that he, his life, this community, shaped by the story of Jesus from beginning to end. We became Christians because actually we recognized that Jesus saved us from our sins and recreated us for a new life. Church together becomes a community that is shaped by the cross, shaped by his life, shaped by an understanding of what does Jesus think is important and woven through from beginning to end of that letter that deals with a very commonplace thing is Jesus. So why? Why do we not see each other through the lens of racism? Because of Jesus. Why are we not going to judge you on the basis of your education or your wealth? Because of Jesus. Why is the, are the elderly and the very young welcomed and incorporated and valued and listened to? Because of Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who is woven through the life that we have together. It's Jesus that shapes us. This little letter that's tucked away. It's a church. It was written to a church that began to change the world. Not so the world would notice immediately. All of Philemon's generation would die, not knowing how significant their life had been. All of them would die not knowing. Paul would die not knowing how significant his life had been. But that church began to see the world change, began with just a little pebble thrown into the pond, but the ripples... We still live with today. And to those of you that sometimes go, all oh, these people shouting about rights, it's because of Christianity. <laughs> it's because of Christianity. 
It's because in one little church, home church, with a slave and a master, Paul said, here, we've all got rights. Especially the ones who you might think shouldn't. So what does it mean for us? We're in that tradition. We're in that tradition. We've talked about names that matter, knowing one another's names and making sure that we hold those names because actually if we're going to be a community, it can't be anything less than that. We've talked about <clears throat> subverting the hierarchies, making sure that we're not classing people on the way the rest of the world would do. We've talked about um, the the, the community, the koinonia, the partnership we have together, that idea of hanging in there together, even on the difficult days. And when we've been hurt, and you will be hurt, if you're new to our church, let me tell you, you will go through a period at some stage or other where somebody will do something or say something to you, and you will feel hurt, and you will be right to feel hurt. They may not have done it intentionally, but it will happen to you. I guarantee it. I've been in this church for 35 years. I've got track record. <clears throat> and you have a choice. Because you can up and leave and go, those people know better than they ought to be. Or you can stay and forgive. And so we demonstrate what forgiveness looks like in a world that finds it very difficult to understand how to forgive. And in a culture around us where things are just accepted, we become a people who go, not so here. We may die before we see the kingdom come in its full, but we play our part. And it starts and it finishes because of Jesus and this morning, we're going to take time together to celebrate communion. It's where we remember that the body of Jesus is broken and we offer it to you. And we take the cup and we, we say, this is the blood of Jesus that's shed for you, the covenant made with you. But you can't do it as an individual. You have to do it as part of a body. It's us, it's not me. And so you come with others. So this is what I want you to do this time. In a moment or two, we'll, you know, we'll play a song and we'll all get ready to come. And as you come down the aisle, it's inevitable you come alongside someone else. It's almost inevitable because the aisle's big enough. Perfect size for weddings. And um, when you get to the front, I want you, you have to make sure you can do this before you get here, to say to the person who's serving you, this is. So if Anne and Joan came down together, Anne might say, this is Joan, and we'll serve Joan, and then she'll, Joan will say, this is Anne, and we'll serve Anne. And so in a sense, you come with someone and you come alongside someone and you receive. Does that make sense? Yeah? <laughs> if, you get, if you get stuck, 
I've no idea who this is. <laughs> we'll serve anyway, don't worry. It's a reminder that you're not coming as an individual, but you're coming together because not so here. The rest of the world, individualism rules. Not so here. The rest of the world, it's what you can get for yourself. Not so here. The rest of the world, it's only those that are closest to you that you might want to care for. Not so here. We come as the body of Christ with a call to see the kingdom come and the world change. And it begins in simple acts of worship. I'm going to ask the folks to come and play. We've not assigned people to, uh, to serve, so if I need a couple of people to serve the cups, if that would be possible for you to come, if you'd like to come and serve, that'd be great. Got one. Somebody else come and serve alongside Julian. Steve. And then Beth. Oh, uh, Beth. Beth's, Beth's ahead of you. Beth, come. That's great. Thank you, uh, Claire, though. Do you want to serve the band first? Let's pray together. Father God, we are not in our own strength able to be the church that you would wish. In our own strength, we will fail time and time again. Lord, in our own strength, our best efforts are not good enough. But because of the power of the Spirit, something new can be uh, uh, fashioned out of our brokenness. Because of the power of the Spirit, you can do what would seem to be impossible. Because of the power of the Spirit, you can take our lives and we can become something that will demonstrate a new way to the world around us. So, Father God, as we come and we take crumbs that remind us of a bigger story, Lord, may you take our lives that look so small and may they become bigger stories for so many other people. Lord, come and feed us. The body and blood of Jesus which was shed for us and we are participating in and we become part of the body of disciples. Lord, may we know your life as we take together. And as we stand with one another, may we know the blessing of being part of a body of Christ. Lord, as we eat and drink, may your spirit rest on us, we pray in the name of Jesus.